This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I am joined by an award-winning writer and performer known for her solo works, Loveland, Squeezebox, and Shelter. She has enjoyed success off-Broadway, headlining the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and touring the country. Her writing workshops, encouraging people to unmute themselves and write their life story, are making a big impact. She has been featured on NPR, PBS, and the BBC. Now, finally, she has found her way on to the Creativity in Captivity podcast. Coming up, my conversation with writing wonderkind, Ann Randolph. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Hi, Pat. It's great to be here. I'm so happy to have you because you are one of those people who not only is a working performer, but is a really sought-after teacher of storytelling. I was fortunate, Pat, to have you on uh, my online class, and you were so inspiring to so many students with the way that you approach art and your creative process. So it's a mutual admiration here. <laughs> I'm happy to have it. And let, let's talk about that in general, about how many students you have and how frequently you do these seminars. Right now, I do this thing called Unmute Yourself, Your Story Matters, and it, it's an online daily writing practice, and we do it every other month for every single day, and I've got about 160, 170 students in there. What is the importance of a daily writing practice? It's discipline, Pat, <laughs> and I don't know about you, but many artists have trouble with discipline, myself included, and I think having a program where, you, where you're there every day and you're accountable it helps artists because a lot of us are very creating kind of chaos and it's very hard for us to maintain structure. And I think having this container is really, really helpful. Yeah. Accountability is very, very important, especially talking to anybody here that's listening that has a creative practice that might be independent. They might be a visual artist that works alone or in the case of you and I, a one person show, it's almost impossible to do as one person. You have to have a director or a, somebody to bounce off of mainly so you show up on time and you continue to work on it. <laughs> yeah. I always say a solo show is not a solo show. It's like, yeah, it takes a village. And it, a lot of times because I'll procrastinate and a lot of, because it's, hello, it's scary to put your whole show out there, to put yourself out there 80 minutes alone. So often what I will do is I'll book the show before sometimes I even finish writing the script. I will do it to force me to that backed up against the corner. I want people to hear that because that is, Tremendous advice because that deadline just keeps getting closer. And right. it's the same way people behave when they have to do their taxes. If April 15th didn't exist, nobody would do their taxes ever. Yeah. Like I contend that the reason weddings go off is that people put out a hold the date and they do it as a way to sort of <laughs> say to everybody, oh, time to time to get this thing ready. I mean, they're putting on a show, right? They have to get right. 
costumes and music and readings and food. That's what you do first is you lay out the, the when it has to be done by. And if it's not real, oftentimes an artist will not react to it. And look, it is terrifying. So it makes all the sense that you want to postpone it because it's so scary to put your work out there. I know a lot of people listening, that's a big hurdle for them to just put the work out there because you don't know if you're going to succeed. You don't know if you're going to fail. And I'm sure you, Pat, my you and I both have probably horror stories where you're just like, it's like <laughs> you're bombing out there until you, you know, you really get it solid. And it's it's a challenge and it's not easy to get back up there again. The hardest thing is decision to actually do it, not the doing it. The doing it is not as hard as this, the idea that you are going to do it. So that goes for anybody who says, one day I want to take improv classes. You know, doing improv is not as hard as the first time you go. Yeah. First time you go to the gym, the first time you start your diet, whatever it is, it's the actual act of doing it that is, the I think, the bigger hurdle. Yes, I do too. <laughs> and you, you face it every day with with, with students but you have ones that have now entered the practice with you and they've been there for years. I started it during COVID. So two years, I, I mean, I've been teaching before like at Esalen and Hollyhock and week long programs. Cause I think a week long retreat can jumpstart people on a, on their project, but now two years and out of this two years, I've had uh, students put up solo shows, which has been totally exciting. I've had students, have things published at, uh, you know, I, I think I had one student publish a modern love and which is New York times and winning the moth. So it's super exciting to watch what happens. And then I have some students that just want to approach it as a way to look at the different places where they're in conflict with each other. Cause we all have these voices inside of us. So they're really mining that internal war and seeking integration. They're seeking some transformation. So they're not they're, they're identifying the voices instead of letting one voice just kind of rule the roost there. In your workshop, I'll call it <laughs> Unmute Yourself, you are in some ways serving as a midwife for people to give birth to their story. I love that, Pat. That's great. Yes. <laughs> because they do need your help along the way. Do you spend time talking about what they're doing structurally or are you just sort of keeping them on track to keep writing and to start shaping it? Tell me a little bit about the process well, it's going to sound really woo-woo, Pat, but I start with like this in, you know, it's not woo-woo. Stephen Pressfield talks about that, who wrote War of Art, and it's probably my favorite book about overcoming resistance, but setting intentions. So we'll do a list of 10 intentions first. Like I welcome uncertainty. I welcome not knowing what word will be spoken next. I welcome, you know, seeing my humanity in other people's stories. So setting intentions. And then we have a, a seven-minute meditation, a non-religious meditation, meditation just to get into relaxation because creativity to me is comes through mental and physical relaxation. If you're super scattered, it's going to be very hard for you to focus. And so that relaxation helps. And then it's tapping the unconscious. What wants to come out? Because people often have this direction. I'm, I want to write this thing and they get in the way of what really wants to be spoken. And then we write. And then after we write for like a half an hour, then there's Q&A and I'll teach about structure because I think that's the hardest thing for people is structure. So there's a little bit of structure and there's a masterclass where we do structure once a week because that's everybody's hurdle is, well, what's the frame? What's the container that holds it all? All right. Well, let's give the listener some context about what your backstory is, because I do know 
that you were an actress and were doing other things before you began to write your one-person shows. Yeah. Then you began to write them from a very truthful place. And and I wouldn't say dark as much as fully authentically facing the fear of talking about what was going on around you. So will you kind of give a little bit of the backstory, particularly as you went into your first one-woman show? Yes. Well, I, well, I think I started when I saw Carol Burnett and Gilda Radner. So I wanted to do characters. I never wanted to tell my own story, Pat. <laughs> I'm like, no way. And plus, I love comedy. So I started out in comedy. And then when I was going to college, I couldn't afford uh, to continue college unless I got a job. And I got a job. I'd seen the movie King of Hearts, where these mentally ill patients take over this town after World War One, And I thought, and that town became very magical, creative. And I thought, well, the mentally ill, the insane, or the true creatives. So I got this job living at a state mental hospital right on the ward with schizophrenics for four years. Wow. It was like, oh my God, I want to write shows about what I'm seeing. But I would never include myself. Mm -hmm. I would I would become the people that I was working with. And I loved the whole experience. I was drawn to characters. I was drawn to people that were on the edge, on the margins of life. And then so my goal was then to continue writing characters, outrageous characters. And I, they were mentally ill. And then when I got out of that, I, I worked in homeless shelters with mentally ill, homeless, crack core prostitutes. And these were the characters that I would do. So then I got in Groundlings, which is a comedy, big comedy group in Los Angeles. I was performing every week with Will Ferrell, Chris Kattan, Sherry. I mean, like big players. We were doing a show and I was playing these characters and I felt this thing, this deep feeling inside me that I'm just doing the comedy. I'm not just, I'm not telling the whole story. And I felt really like I was betraying, right? I was just going after the laugh and I wanted to get the whole story in there. So I started my first one person show was really telling all these women's stories, not mine, Pat. I was still hiding behind yeah. wigs, costumes. And I would win awards with this. I would win like best solo show, best solo performer, best solo show with these characters. But I, at one point, it was like I was also financing these shows with a credit card. <laughs> I was like, I had been working 10 years in the graveyard shift at this homeless shelter, uh, seven at night to seven in the morning. And when the women would go to sleep, then I would go through the donation bin and get my costumes. <laughs> oh, so, okay. So you were taking it from the... From the clothes that were being donated. Interesting. <laughs> to shoes to then performing. So I worked four nights a week at the shelter. Three nights I'd be on stage. Four nights at shelter. So this was the thing. This went on for 10 years of self-financing my show. Wanting to, and any time, like I had an agent. I had William Morris at the time. I had big managers. And they say, and your characters are too far out. They're oh. too, you're too far. <laughs> They're so wild, <laughs> right? And I had a deal with William Morris. He set up a packaging deal. And I remember he wanted me to take out the crack whore. He thought that crack whore was too much. And that crack whore to me was what, it was a, a really rough time there of having audiences just go crazy, but not being able to go into television at the time because it, they were too fringe. And then this feeling like after 10 years, I was just like, I can't keep this pace up. And I really got to the point were, and what are you hiding? What I was always challenging myself. What are you hiding? And I was hiding my own fear that I would end up like homeless if I kept this pace of maxing out my credit cards for theaters. And so I wrote about my own fear in relationship to these 
women. And so I started to tell my own truth. So the next show I wrote was myself with these women. And so I played myself in maybe 10 different characters. And then one night while I was performing it, Mel Brooks came and saw the show. And with Anne Bancroft, I remember the show was 80 minutes and looking out in the audience and seeing him laughing hysterically. And then at the poignant places also crying. And afterwards he came backstage and he said, I I think you're a genius. I want to make a a movie of this. And he goes, what do you want? I go, I said, a movie sounds great, but I, I want Broadway too. And he said, we'll make that happen. And then Anne Bancroft said she wanted to play a character in the movie. And I go, which one? She goes, the crack core. So she, wow. the very one that was rejected by television was the one Mel Brooks then and Anne Bancroft wanted. That was such a turning point for me. That was after 10 years of that minimum wage at a graveyard shift. So had Anne seen the show first and brought Mel or they came together just on, on a whim? They came together because I was in this writing workshop with Terry Silverman and it's where I developed all my shows. And in that workshop was their daughter-in-law, but I didn't know it was their daughter-in-law. And she kept coming up to me. She goes, one day I'm going to bring my in-laws. I'm like, bring whoever you want. Right, <laughs> I had no right. idea. It was, it was them. But that then, turned into a very successful off-Broadway run and a great relationship with them, and yes. and which opened a lot of doors for folks coming to see your work. Yes, it was a huge turning point. It was, and yeah, I never went back to minimum wage after that. Yeah. I mean, I was able to tour after that. I was able to write new shows, and so things really turned around for me. But the missing link was the moment that you faced your greatest fears and decided to embrace and write about it and be vulnerable is when the story was more fulfilling to you, when the showcase was more real to you, when the characters had more depth. And I understand the journey. So exploiting characters for laughs in the Groundlings is what the Groundlings does. They do a great, great job of that. And that's the stomping ground of many, many Saturday Night Live folks, uh, as is Second City. But when you enter the world of theater and the playwright and the storytelling, you do have to have more than frosting on the cake. You have to have some nutrition in there. Uh, (laughs) And you've continued to do that with other shows, and now you're encouraging other folks. And are they often writing about trauma, or what are people selecting when they come to you? Are they wanting to do theater? Are they want to write? Are there, is there a wide variety of interests? It's a wide variety. It's, it's yeah, some writing solo shows, some writing memoir, and some using writing as a healing tool, which there's been all kind of documentation that if you write in studies, that if you write your story and you revisit past trauma, look, the best stories are the ones where the character is at their lowest point, right? We're watching a transformation. So, I'm encouraging people and hopefully giving them permission to go as dark and deep as possible because there's where the gold is, but it's scary to do alone. So that's why I think it's really good to be in a group together where we're doing it. The stories that have been shared in a mute of child abuse, sexual abuse, alcoholism, addiction, porn addiction, we're watching the hero's journey. So you're overcoming these early traumas and some, yes, traumas that are happening now in people's life. I mean, COVID was a trauma. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. It really, it triggered a lot of different things. And believe me, the online therapy business was like overwhelmed by the amount of people that needed somebody to talk to about where they were. And I think how we define ourselves is ultimately 
how we react in the world. If we're a victim or if we're a narcissist or if we're whatever we are at whatever points in our life we are. Yeah. It's much more the encounter with ourself that's the deeper thing to worry about than running into anybody else outside. I love that you say that, Pat, because, yeah, it's the demon inside is the part of us that we want to like look at. I have a new piece that I'm working on, and I talk about people having the same middle name. Like there are people who have my same name, and it was it was a police report where they found another Patrick James Hazel, and I kept thinking, this guy could be ruining my name, but I'm busy ruining my own name. And, I mean, we all are. And what's interesting is that what I think we share as a middle name is humanity. So yeah. as soon as we're able to see that in ourselves and in others, then it's not so much divide. It's not so much build a wall. It's not so much uh, separate people. It's not about the other camp. It becomes right. where can we see that part of us in them that needs affection or that needs attention or that needs approval because people just want to be listened to. People just want to be heard. They want to be accepted. Look at every imaginable click in the world whether it's friends at a school or being on a team or making the grade or getting onto Broadway, like everybody wants to be in something yes, and not outside of it. Yes. A lot of your work has a humanity driven, the human condition is at the core of, of your character work and the people that you look at. Thank you, Pat. Well, I, I'm like you, I think story is the way because it's so, especially now because everything's so polarized, but once you hear somebody's story, there's no way I believe that you can't really love them. Yeah. Have you seen that Heineken commercial? I think it's Heineken where they put opposite folks together. Yes. I love that. It's crazy. Like that these opposites of any kind, whether it's about sexuality or race, they put them together on a task, which is to build a project, to put something together. And they realize that during that, they get to know each other. And then their choice at the end is whether or not to share a beer or not share a beer. And it's very defining to see the people that are too stubborn to do it. And it's also really rewarding to see people who realize, oh, this person's not so different from me. Yeah. And I think it's a simple, poignant demonstration. And while used for commercial reasons, it does remind us that we have to be listening to other people's stories, not only telling our own. Yes. And, and there's that part of us, too. Like if we were victimized by somebody that we write from their point of view and there's incredible empathy that's created for the villain. Like if you look at certain people as a villain in your life and you write from their point of view, it, the whole world, compassion and empathy open up there. And that's very important in storytelling too, that you don't ever make someone just a bad guy. It's like, no, we have these beautiful parts in us. And yeah. we've got these other parts that are very, very challenging. And how the bad guy becomes the bad guy is often a terrible part of their story. What happened to them in their past or what was the circumstances that made them make a choice? Yeah. Because we often get, put in a situation where we try to choose something uh, which is self-protecting. And if that means that we have to put something aside or somebody aside, it's not a value we like, but there's a survival mode, I think. Yes, I totally agree. Because yeah, it's covering up. It's a defense that got us through often childhood, but that's the very thing we need to shed now. So you have also explored being like a homeless person in, in a short <laughs> film. You No, you dressed up as yes. a homeless person and you went to explore the reality of it and that must give you an awful lot of truth to see how people responded to you yes it was it was sad actually to be passed by again and again and again and uh and then also to see once again people's humanity people that went above and beyond to help so 
a mix there, uh, Pat. And, and I'm also very aware of, I think because I work with so many homeless and mentally ill on that particular short film I made, it was, I was very interested in like, what's the cause of the day, right? We forget vets, we forget homeless, but if something just happened, we're eager to, to help, but I'm really interested and always, I think probably living in that mental institution for four years with Appalachian people that were chronically institutionalized that I was felt a keen interest in the, in the ones that were forgotten. On your website or on YouTube somewhere, I saw a concept of yay boo. And I want you sort of, if you could remember, share that. Because it's really an amazing, interesting story of life. That's actually in my new show, Inappropriate in All the Right Ways. And I'm going to share, it's going to sound so corny, but I remember coming back from Washington, D.C. I'd just done a show at the Arena Stage, and I walk into this jazz club, and my friend Susie Williams is singing a song called Yay Boo. And it goes something like, uh, there's a tavern in the town, yay, but today we closed it down, boo, but it opens up tonight, yay, without a single drink in sight, boo. And I'm hearing this, and it goes, yay, boo, yay, boo, yay, boo. And I thought, well, you know what? That is life. Life is like a, it's almost like the Buddhist non-dualism. <laughs> yay, boo, yay, boo. And I thought, this is a way to hold a, you know, we're always after that next mountaintop, or I am, I should say, the next mountaintop without looking at the, at the boos. and how to embrace the boo and the yay both and not desire one and repel the other. Anyway, I, when I heard that, I was like, I'm going to find a way to put this in the show. And what that happened, what I saw happen was that now I do an interactive storytelling event after each show and I have the audience write their life story in yay boo. Like for example, I got married in Vegas. Yay. But then he cheated on a hooker. Boo. Right. So it goes, yeah, yay, boo, yay, boo, yeah. It, it's a super simple way for people to enter storytelling and telling their life story. So. And the truth is, it is the structure of every good screenplay. Yes. And I I learned it when I was a kid from a book called Fortunately, Unfortunately. And it's the exact same premise. It's a beautiful book. I will send it to you. It's simply illustrated. And a kid is supposed to go to a birthday party, but it's far away, so he can't go. But fortunately, he knows somebody who has an airplane. Unfortunately, it runs out of gas. But fortunately, there's a parachute. But unfortunately... You know what I mean? And so this is great, Pat. It's, it's great. You will love it. And it's the very same, but I, I applaud your friend for putting it into shorter syllables among other things, but also it is a good reminder that, that when we want to tell a story, we do have to put obstacles in the way we're living it with obstacles in the way. So if your journey in the storytelling is that you don't run into any problems, then you don't really have any conflict or any crisis to overcome. Right. So, you know, it's not a very interesting story to say, I woke up, put on my favorite shirt, had my favorite food, met my best friend. There's nothing there that means that we need to tell that story now. It's pretty dull. But once you throw something in the way, you put in the the dog bite or the car wreck, people go, what happened? They want to right. know more. Somebody died. Yes. You, you took a sip of alcohol for the first time and went down a dark road of alcoholism. Yeah. We want to see the hero and heroine in major obstacle. Well, how do you encourage your student to avoid things like writer's block when they feel like that resistance overtakes them? What, what's your idea to get people jump-started back in? Actually, I think what really works is to create a character of resistance. Create an alter ego, give it a name, what does it look like, and then begin to dialogue like, why are you showing up, resistance? Why, mm. why critic, are you here today on the page? And then let the writer talk back and forth in a dialogue. 
And I think that's super helpful for me. It I like whenever I get resistance, I turn it into a character because then I can also exaggerate it and distort it and find humor in resistance. Yeah. Writing through anything. I, occasionally I'll write an essay based on a picture that I see, which means that I, I don't really know all the facts of the story of the picture, but it, it prompts me to say, Oh, why, why that shirt? Why is that person's haircut weird? What's that in the background? It immediately puts me on a path to fill in the blanks as a writer. And I don't always use everything, but do you ever eavesdrop? Do you ever Oh yeah. always overhear some part of a sentence and you think that is a, what got to that day that that person said, I'm not visiting him a prison anymore. What happened? I know. And then you're off and running. You're creating a character based on what you heard in their whole life story. Well, that's Pat, because you're super creative too, right? Your imagination is always like, oh, how can I turn this into, well, I think that, how can I turn this into material? <laughs> Everything I do at this point in my career is not about exploiting things for material, but it is to find a challenge and it is to find something of interest that is different than when I began. When I began, it was entertainment-based, just as yours was with the Groundlings. Mine was doing magic tricks and juggling and telling jokes and in trying to keep people in higher spirits. And I realized that as I moved into sitcom writing, that it wasn't the calm that was so important. Like I had a toolkit for comedy. And so I could make anything funny. What I needed was grounded, truthful situations that I needed a story that was a good armature to decorate with comedy. And yes. that was a much more powerful change in my writing than it was to be a guy that was what I would call a joke sniper. Like I used to get hired to come in and punch things up. And that, that was just like sitting in a tower lobbing jokes out whenever there was a crisis, but it, it didn't get me to be a better storyteller. It just meant that I was a better sharpshooter for jokes. So I needed to kind of back away from that and learn structure, as you said, and learn right with people on a deeper level. And ultimately I find that everything's much more satisfying when it's hanging on something that has a little bit more depth or authenticity in it. Yeah, but you had that desire. You just didn't want to be a joke writer. You were highly successful writing jokes, sitcom, but the desire, Pat, to go deeper was in you. And then you created these shows that were incredible with showing your vulnerable self. I wouldn't say they were overly exposing, but here's what I was proud of. I was proud that even though it might appear to be a sitcom on stage, that the take-home message, that the last moments, the pathos that was set into the show did create something for an audience member who said, oh, I should bring my brother back to the show. Oh, I should call and apologize to my mom. Oh, I should. When you start to hear that kind of crazy compliment where people come up and they hug you after the show, and it's not because they like you or the show, they say, my dad suffered with dementia and I needed this tonight. Yes. That's when you start to feel a certain power drawn between you and that audience member that you go, Oh, I think I did the right thing. You know, I, yeah. I didn't shy away from, from talking about my dad's journey when I could have, I could have closed that door, but it really was very helpful. And, and I guess I feel like you now have so many people from the, from my visit to your zoom class, I could see them leaning into wanting to know more, wanting to write more, wanting to share more, which is not something you typically can do among your peer group. We are busy protecting ourselves from what our neighbors think of us. But when you're in a group like this, all willing to have vulnerability be a superpower, 
it's quite, quite powerful. Yeah. I, I think there's nothing like it, Pat. I think we're all seeking it. We all want to be able to expose ourselves in that way. It's just having the support of a group is is tremendous. They encourage each other and give each other, each other even more permission. And I, I'm thinking about what you said after Bunk Bed Brothers, when you would do the show and people would want to bring their parents back or bring their brother back, or they'd share something very vulnerable with you afterwards. And that's to me, how I started doing workshops right after my performances, because I would, the level in the show I wrote on grief, people would literally wait in the lobby or backstage and just start crying, Pat, and tell me, and this was an outrageous comedy on loss, but it had the pathos at the end where the audience was crying. And so they would wait in the lobby to tell me about somebody that had passed away. And, and you're just listening. I thought, well, why not do this in the theater? So I started after each performance saying who would like to stay. And I passed out notebooks to the audience and wow. said, we're going to write about grief and loss instead of going out for cocktails. And I'd say 50% of the audience stayed and wrote. And then I watched as one night, this man, this was in Washington, D.C. at the arena stage. This man raises his hand and says, I'd like to share my story. And I saw a very conservative man, maybe in a Brooks Brothers suit, stand up and share with the whole audience about his wife dying to breast cancer. And then this audience that was strangers becomes this beautiful community holding space for each other to tell their stories. It was stunning. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this every night. So I was doing eight shows a week. And then after each show, I do a 45-minute workshop with the audience. The show was solid. I was doing it. It got great reviews. But as a performer, you have great nights and you have good nights. And sometimes you can beat yourself up or I can. And if I had a show where I didn't like knock it out of the park, as soon as I did that workshop, I forgot about the show. I was not in that mode of like, oh, self-blame and shame. I had to shift gears immediately to focus this on the other. And that was a big lesson to me as well, to let go. I, I have a tendency after performances to really go down what worked and what didn't work and do this self blame shame. You're not alone in that. The toughest thing for any artist is to do make a self portrait because they have to look at themselves and bear all they have to decide. Are they going to paint themselves with vanity? Are they going to really look themselves in the eyes and reflect how they see themselves or are they going to paint the way they want to be seen? It's the same in walking off stage and somebody says to you, that was great, Anne. And then you want to say, well, it wasn't as good as I, like you immediately put brushstrokes on it to apologize, which is absolutely not necessary. And it's very, very common thing to do, just as it is when people walk in your house and you go, it's not normally this messy. It's like, shut up. Please just, please just welcome me, be yourself. But there's something about our human condition that makes us want to say to everybody, I'm not normally this disorganized. Yeah, you exactly. Know? Yeah, or I'm much more than what you saw tonight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think also as comedians, we know where the laugh is. So we do know when we're off. It's not like we're interpreting things. We know when we don't hit the joke or it doesn't get the reaction. We didn't deliver it in a way that we know it's supposed to land. So I think it's, it's so easy to be a dramatic playwright and do drama because they're not waiting on that first laugh. I know where my first laugh is in the show. And if I don't get it at a certain level or volume, I can already see the inner critic when it come on, like within the first one minute of the show saying, ah, you know. Then you're also in your head trying to self-correct. So you're not paying attention 
to the, yeah. you know, what can I do? Oh, do I push a little harder here? And then that throws the next thing off. So would yeah. you mind talking a little bit about overcoming performance anxiety for somebody that might be, have written something and then now is really constricted about performance? Yes, because I have performance anxiety still to this day. The first thing would be, I've never read this book, but the title struck me, which is Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. So I'm going out there and I do have anxiety. And what has helped me, and I know that maybe, you know, you always have a little bit of stage fright. But I think when I talk to other performers, I think I have more anxiety than most performers. And what has helped is meditation and breathing. So a regular practice, not just like right before the show that you are doing a meditation practice. And also uh, I work with body scan, which is a Tibetan body scan meditation that helps me feel my, I'll do that before a show. So I can feel my feet on the floor and really ground. Uh That's super helpful for me. The other thing is I take holy basil, which is a herb. It's an herb and it's very calming right before I go on stage. I'll take that one. As far as performance anxiety, I think too know that once you're out there, usually it dissipates. Yeah. It's the buildup. But I think it's important to know how anxiety affects you psychologically, emotionally, and physically before a performance. And the more you're familiar with your symptoms, it doesn't freak you out as much. I know I get really irritable right before, like there's so much. And I think people berate themselves for having these symptoms, <laughs> but I think it's truly normal for performers to be affected in these ways. And you do it anyway, you, you go out there anyway. And also understanding, I don't know that much about anxiety, but I do know that it's never manifested in exactly what it is. For example, people don't have a fear of flying, even though they call it that they have a fear. That person has a fear of not being in control. Yes. That the plane, what will happen? They start to think, well, this guy landed. Well, what, you know, all of those other things. So as you begin to identify that stuff, then you do understand. It doesn't necessarily make it go away, but then you know you can take it in the sidecar with you. I like that. It's in the sidecar. It's going with you. Yep. (laughs) Just keep it from grabbing the wheel. That's what I say. Don't let it pull you off the road. Yeah, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about that in Big Magic, that you're driving the car and this fear anxiety is in the driver, in the passenger seat, but just don't let the, it's going to be with you on every creative journey, any ride, it's going to be there. Just don't let it touch the radio or take the wheel. Correct. And I would also say regarding your inner critic, they can come to the show, but just don't give them a ticket to review it. Don't give them (laughs) permission. And that's the truth. You can maybe say that wasn't my best show you don't need to be the one that prints it in the paper. And that's what happens when you say to somebody, it wasn't that good. You have a standard. You'd like to reach that standard. But I also have to say the experience of each audience member coming to an event for the first time. One of the things we love about theater is that it's organic to the experience of that night. And so not every laugh's in the same place. Everybody responds differently. And that's the wave we're all surfing. And we're, of course, hoping to have a perfect surf. But nonetheless, we're back the next night to hit the water again. Yeah, and it's never perfect. That's what keeps us marching. It keeps us going because we're never going to get it 100%. Or that's the way I feel with my own show. Like, there's challenges all the time in there. Let's talk about building confidence and giving uh, permission to yourself to explore. When your student comes to you for the first time, Yes. How do you build their confidence in that they what they're doing is 
absolutely fine. It's not, there's not doing anything wrong. Well, I focus on what's working in the piece and I can tell you, Pat, in any first write that anybody does, I can find something that's working. When people get out of their way and they don't censor themselves, they just let themselves play on that page. There's, there's gold there in them and their heels. <laughs> there is. So I think the way to instill confidence is to find that, that nugget in their piece. And the first rights, I've never not seen a first right where I haven't seen something in there that is, can speak to many people. They have a message that only they can tell. So I, I really believe that. I see people's essence in their first rights. And you don't set them off on their own to think something up. Often you give a writing prompt. Yes. And I have to say, before I was in Terry Silverman's class, I was with different teachers and different people that would criticize my first rights, criticize my, look, Groundlings was highly competitive when I was performing there. And there's critical feedback. And then I was with other writing instructors that were hardcore on a first right. And I don't think you can do that. That's like a little baby that's just come out. You have to feed it and nurture it. And not till I got with Terry and she really focused only on what was working. Then I, I took off. I really took off. And Stephen King talks about that in his memoir book. You vomit out that first right. You vomit it out and trust, trust what you're writing. Later, you can get the critical feedback. I know from reading on Unmute, we also have this platform called Circle where you can post your rights and their first rights. And every one of, every one of those first rights, there's not one person I don't read that I'm just not touched and moved by what they're sharing. And so I would encourage that. I would reflect that. Well, life is theater. Yes. We, we are theater. The medium is us. What makes it drama is the act of staging those moments from life. Yes. We are constantly either a participant in somebody else's drama or they're a, somebody we're viewing from the bus stop or from the other desk at the office because it's unfolding at all times. If you're able to write about moments in your life that are they're worth making theatrical or dramatizing, I think that's kind of figuring out, as you said earlier, the word frame. How do we frame it? Yes, that's the tricky part, but yes. But sometimes it's just starting with that turning point scene. What is the turning point scene that won't leave you? It just It's imprinted, that image, it's with you, and you, you can't let it go. And putting that down and then seeing where that takes you. And what's the question that's, that you're struggling with? What are you grappling with right now? But the problem with many writers will put in too many questions, but it's really just a simple story. What is the one question? You know, will I be able to bear this loss? Will I be able to overcome this addiction? Will I be able to? And then moving, and we get to watch the writer and the performer move through that. You're speaking to what would be considered a universal truth, but give that premise that's your mission statement to ask that question. And therefore, if things don't fall into that category, you can save those to write for another piece. Then you're not in so much chaos. Listening to the questions and answers, as you said earlier, writing from the other's point of view, the thing you're coming up against and trying to figure out how that is a mirror or a shadow reflecting. It's really about listening. It's about observing. It's about squinting and seeing the details. Yes. Of, of that particular question. What is that question? Yes. And then I love that you brought up details because that's that's what engages us, the, the sensory and the details. And in these traumatic scenes, right, where the character hits rock bottom, we have a tendency to want to rush those details. 
And the more you slow down where it hurts, the more you enter in and let us really feel, then the more we can take that audience and reader on a ride. But our tendency, because look, we don't want to revisit it. But when we truly revisit it as a writer with all sensory experience on board, it, it it's incredibly powerful. Yeah, I like the reminder of sensory experience too, because what does it sound like? What does it look like? Those are the first two things, but what does it feel like? What was the sound of that trauma? What in that painting made you cry? So you have to sit in the silence to say, why am I having empathy towards this piece of artwork? Right. And and it's in that moment, it's that in the loan in the gallery where you say, oh, I see. That's the scar in my heart. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's beautifully put, Pat. I just, I'm becoming more aware of other people's storytelling as an audience member, not from being a writer, but in, in accepting that I'm not going to predict their journey. I just want to be caught off guard. You know, we're always hopeful when we sit down in the theater, we can't predict what's coming. Right. We want the surprise. And when, when it's not, when you leave a movie and you go, ah, I knew that was going to happen. It's completely unsatisfying. Right. Yes. Yes. It yes. Is, it isn't saying manipulate that storytelling. It's find the thing that hasn't been told before or in the voice that you have or the unique approach that you have to it. Because that's, that's why it's necessary to have that story. Now, nobody wants to see a retelling of that other story. We've seen a hundred times. I think that's what's so exciting that's happening in television and on Netflix who is the amount of stories from around the world. So we're seeing new ground and new ground in the way people are telling stories. So I get super excited and TikTok. I mean, all these mediums, right. For people to express and share themselves. And it's like the world's catching on to the power of storytelling. I'm thinking about like 25 years ago, if you said you were a storyteller, <laughs> now on every corner in Silicon Valley, they're teaching storytelling for marketing storytelling for it's like, they know that's a way to connect with, with one another. Yeah, and how story it, itself is infused in every part of life. Yes. It's infused in sales. It's infused in relationship. It's infused in anything that you're doing. People want to know the why or the how, and that all comes from your ability to tell the story. Yes. Ma major corporate brands some of them don't know why they do and sell what they do. And it's because they don't know their story. Well, the fact that you brought up the Heineken commercial, right? They're telling an incredible story in that short video. Yeah. And in many ways, they're borrowing storytelling as a tool to have empathy <laughs> towards beer sales. <laughs> I say it with a wink, but there's an exploitation of story, which is we want to feel something. And when we feel something, we want to be involved in it or we want to lean into it. It is, as you say, a healing part of the journey. And some people need comedies. They absolutely need to yes. forget what's going on in their world or they're overcoming something and they need to come home and laugh. But also people need to have these deeper stories that are stories that are ones of survival. The pandemic put everybody on a, a question mark of what is my path? What is my purpose? What is my passion? Why? I don't like this job. I don't want to do that anymore. Normally they wouldn't, they would just go with the status quo and go, Oh, I'll be five more years and I retire. 
But now it's like, why, why waste another minute of my time? Yeah. And what a wonderful thing to like think, rethink your life and have two years, <laughs> over two years to rethink your life. Yeah. And as a storyteller, I guess what I always say to people, I know it's scary, but you are the narrator. You are the person writing the story that continues and you get to decide where it goes. So you know it as a writer, I know it as a writer, that we can go to a new scene, we can change the the question mark, we can do we can face trouble and we can get out of the trouble. Well, that's exactly what we're doing every day of our life. So if you don't want to go to that crappy job anymore, it's up to you to write the new chapter. Bingo, Pat. I want to say a big thing on that because that's character taking action. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of solo shows, this happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me. And you're saying, no, character must take action. They're at this point and they have to face choices. Will they or won't they? If we don't do that in our lives and in our writing, a lot of these shows often that I'll see will not have that character taking action. They're stuck in this, this loop. Well, and that's why I feel like acting is reacting. We talk yes. about that in other podcasts with some folks, but also being proactive instead of reactive. So if you're a person who waits for something to happen for you to go, well, now I got to decide what to do because this problem's facing me. Well, you know what? You could dodge that altogether by choosing to be the person that skydives. And it doesn't matter if your spouse or your parents disapprove. If it's something that you really want to do, it's like a firewalk. Once you do a thing like that, you go, I'm not afraid of it anymore. Right. And it's to me faith because you don't know what the outcome is going to be, but you know, you have to do it. And people want assurances. They want to know if I do this and this is going to happen, but no, you have to step into that unknown and we're watching you step into the unknown. We have to do it. Well, do me a favor because you are really so respected for the kind of work you do when you were bouncing around the country initially before you were doing the zoom and you would sit down for a week long workshop. Just give me a sense of what your expectation is with people from a writing time to a taking the stage time, like in a course of a week. By the end of the week, everybody's on stage and they're performing. And I buried the improv part. So it was write your life page to stage. And in my course description, I'd say we do improvisation, but I really hide it because people, writers in particular, have no interest in doing improv. So they'd often show up at Esalen or Kapalu with no idea that they were going to get up at the end of the week and do a performance. They had no idea because I'm hiding it, Pat. It's a little bit of a cheat on my part. But I know that if you can get in access the body, you can go very deep, very quickly, way more than just writing. So by the end of the week, I'd have writers that are saying at the beginning of the week, I will never get on stage. At the end of the week, getting up and I'm throwing out a prompt and they're improvising on the fly on that stage <laughs> with no no script. And they get a narrative arc. So that was always like to me, oh my God, this is this is truly amazing. Once you get somebody loose in their body and trusting that the body doesn't lie. And the body to me also, as you're, I know this might sound strange to people that are writers, it really can give you the narrative arc. You're getting out of your way. We're natural. I feel like our DNA as storytellers, beginning, middle, end, those monologues. So I would give them monologues on the fly and they would create like a 10 minute monologue and there would be a natural arc. And this happened again and again and again. And I've had students come 16, 17 times to a workshop. I mean, I have regular students that come over and over and over again. And if you ask them, they would never, ever imagine that they would be doing this. 
setting foot on stage. Yeah. One of the words that w- was somewhat buried in that was the word trust, that they begin to gain trust in yes. you, which allows them to trust themselves and also the group they're with. Everyone's already in the deep end of the pool. So yes. <laughs> yeah, we're all giving each other permission. Also exercises in the beginning where you're warming up and letting yourself look crazy, weird, up, like letting go of how you look, how you sound and getting comfortable of moving. You know, as kids, as we get to be adults, we forget to play. We forget to move and make weird sounds and let ourselves bodies do what bodies want to do. We get very regimented. So once you can loosen things up a bit, then anything's possible. <laughs> You're saying anything's possible. I want to invite the listener to know that if they have a Jones to write or are curious about it, that they can go to annrandolph.com and find out when she has a, a upcoming workshop or join one in progress, whatever the rules are, you'll tell them. And they can go to annrandolph.com and look at the unmute yourself workshop. And now that it is online, they can be anywhere. And I think that's a pretty amazing thing that you don't have to wait till Ann comes to your town. And so if you're a person that can devote a an hour of time or whatever the writing time is each morning, you're going to see great progress in your storytelling, in finding out who you are. And it's great. I'm so glad we finally made uh, the connection for this and that we're able to share it with others. And I can't wait to see the new show. It's called Inappropriate and in All the Right Way, starring Ann Randolph. Keep an eye out for her and find out more at her website. Thanks for coming in. Oh, thank you. Thank you. This has been wonderful to talk with you. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just too dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call to creativity. La 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 la. la.